Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey everyone, and welcome back. We're still in week two on the female athlete and we're listening to Hewitt 2006 part one. This is the anterior cruciate ligament injuries in female athletes, part one, mechanisms and risk factors. This article was written by Timothy Hewitt, Gregory Meyer, and Kevin Ford. All right, so this article begins by discussing that the mechanism underlying gender disparity in anterior cruciate ligament injury risk is multifactorial. Several theories have been proposed to explain the mechanisms underlying the gender differences in anterior cruciate ligament injury rates. These theories include intrinsic variables of anatomical, hormonal, neuromuscular, and biomechanical differences between genders, as well as extrinsic variables. Identification of both extrinsic and intrinsic risk factors associated with the ACL injury mechanism may provide more direction for targeted preventative treatments of high-risk individuals. We already know there's an elevated risk of ACL injury in women. So then coupled with a tenfold increase in high school and a fivefold increase in collegiate sport participation in the past 30 years, that's led to a rapid rise in ACL injuries in female athletes. The financial cost of a rupture was averaged out to be somewhere between $17,000 and $25,000. This cost is in addition to potential loss of an entire sports season participation, loss of scholarship funding, lowered academic performance, long-term disability, and significantly greater risk of osteoarthritis. So what intrinsic and extrinsic factors are the researchers looking at here? These theories include related extrinsic variables such as physical and verbal perturbations, bracing, and shoe surface interaction, and the intrinsic variables such as anatomical, hormonal, neuromuscular, and biomechanical differences between genders. So let's look at extrinsic factors first. The article broke it down into four categories, including contact versus non-contact, motion perturbations, the effects of bracing, and shoe surface interaction. So starting at number one, contact versus non-contact. I don't gamble, but if I did, I would probably gamble on the likelihood of someone who tore their ACL having it been during a non-contact event. And that's for good reason. 70% of these are non-contact injuries. This is going to vary from study to study, but the big picture, whether it's noted at 70 or 76%, is that that's what typically is occurring. Their definition of a non-contact ACL injury is that an injury that occurs in the absence of player-to-player or body-to-body contact. One study's definition of contact injury is also specific in terming an ACL injury that occurs as a result of a direct blow to the knee as a contact. Those situations where there's an ACL injury with no direct blow to the knee, but there's still a body-to-body contact are going to be difficult to classify. So they term those injuries for non-contact ACL with injury with perturbation. The non-contact mechanism of injury most common in women was a forceful valgus collapse to the knee with close to full extension combined with tibial rotation. They also noted things like a wider stance, but even with slow motion video, it was pretty difficult to exactly detect that. So on to motion perturbation. One study reported that ACL injured Norwegian handball players were often judged by the coaches to have been out of balance, and in the majority of cases, they had some form of perturbation that appeared to alter the player's coordination or their movement. 
Another study examined the effect of gender in the presence of an opponent, so a laboratory skeleton, on the biomechanics of sidestep cutting. So women had an increase in valgus and foot pronation angles and a greater variability in their knee valgus and tibial internal rotation during cutting with the presence of a skeleton there. So we can deduct that some of these perturbations can cause changes in biomechanics of the female athlete that may be ideal conditions for a greater knee valgus force. All right, so now the age-old question, to brace or not to brace? It's unknown whether prophylactic bracing can decrease the risk of ACL injury. One retrospective cohort of ACL injuries found that only 2% of ACL injuries occurred while leg was braced, and bracing decreased anterior tibial translation 29% to 39% without the stabilizing contractions of the hamstring, the quadricep, or the gastrocnemius muscles. With muscle activation and bracing, anterior tibial translation decreased between 70 and 85%. However, bracing does consistently slow the hamstring muscle reaction times. It's unknown whether functional bracing post-reconstruction decreases the risk of graft re-injury. Given that prior injury is the greatest risk factor for re-injury, we should care about this. One study found that knee bracing did not improve functional performance of subjects after ACL reconstruction and concluded that bracing could actually slow down running and turning. Another study looked at female athletes wearing a functional knee brace for all cutting, pivoting, or jumping activities for the first year after ACL reconstruction. There was no differences between groups in knee stability, functional testing, subjective knee scores, range of motion, or strength testing. So they concluded that post-operative bracing did not change the outcomes. Most data is gonna indicate that current brace designs can't prevent injury. So lastly, for extrinsic factors, we're going to be looking at shoe surface interaction, and the consensus is entirely mixed. One study monitored non-contact ACL injuries in the NFL over five seasons and examined the relationship of variables of playing surface, shoe type, and playing conditions to the occurrence of these injuries. More ACL injuries occurred on natural grass than on any artificial surface. Almost half of all injuries, 47.5%, occurred during game day exposures despite the fact that practice versus game day exposure rate was 5 to 1. More than 95% of ACL injuries occurred on a dry field. They found that cold weather was associated with a lower risk of significant knee sprains and ACL injuries when compared with hot weather in outdoor stadiums. So the authors concluded that cold weather was associated with a lower ACL injury risk in outdoor grass stadiums related to the reduced shoe surface traction. Another researcher looked into handball and noted that increased ACL tears on synthetic courts than wooden courts. Another researcher concluded from a review of the literature that there was no strong association between playing surface or footwear and ACL injury risk. So I think it's fair to say that the jury was out on this one in 2006. Moving into intrinsic factors, we're looking at anatomical, hormonal, and neuromuscular considerations. This is a bit more lengthy than the extrinsic factors and for good reason. So anatomical considerations. Tibial length and thigh length is one that they looked at in skiers. One researcher reporting increased thigh length was an increased risk factor to consider. Static alignment and an increased Q angle and pelvic width was another. Since women have a wider pelvis, this is going to lead to an increased Q angle and could relate to injury. Static Q angle doesn't correlate to ACL injury. This further supports that those other dynamic neuromuscular factors in limb alignment with cutting and landing may be more inclined to affect that. Decreased notch width and females having a smaller femoral notch is another hypothesis. 
Those more narrow intracondylar ridges may predispose females to a weaker ACL and increase ACL elongation. One researcher states that females with a 13 millimeter or smaller notch is more likely to sustain an ACL injury. Another researcher commented gender isn't the factor, but rather just the notch size, and females tend to have those smaller notches. Some research shows no association. Increased joint laxity is a consideration as females have more in relation to male counterparts. One research article reported that ACL injured patients demonstrated significantly more knee recurvatum at 10 degrees and 90 degrees of hip flexion and an increased ability to touch palms to floor. Another researcher reported general joint laxity can increase the ACL risk by 2.7 times. Remember this laxity does not only affect the sagittal plane of extension, but also the coronal plane for knee valgus motion. Continuing with the laxity theme, increased hamstring flexibility was a consideration. Flexibility decreases with chronological age and maturation stage in boys, whereas girls shows increases after puberty. Lax hamstrings may lead to a delay in hamstrings muscle activation that results in an absence of that co-contraction between the quads and the hamstring muscle groups for a period of time early in foot strike. While this isn't the only factor, it could be a contributor. Increased anterior tibial translation this can cause 2.7 times greater risk for ACL than those without. It's important to note natural laxity in the female ligaments allows the tibia to shift anteriorly before the supporting muscles can control the movement. Tibial translation is related not only to ligamentous laxity, but also muscle activation. So tibial translation can be modulated by hamstrings and quadriceps activity. So three more anatomical considerations for anyone who's wondering how long this train is going on for. <laughs> Increased foot pronation and navicular drop was also looked at. One study reported that navicular drop was a significant postural predictor of tibial translation and suggested that there was a relationship between increased subtalar joint pronation and an increased strain on the ACL. Another article concluded that the association between non-contact ACL injury and that subtalar joint overpronation. Body mass index and age were also looked at. An estimate of age 12 when the knee injury rates began to increase in female athletes, which consequently matches the timing of a BMI increase in a girl's age. Chronological age and or the increased BMI associated with puberty might play a role in the increased risk of ACL injuries in female athletes. Females with a body weight or BMI greater than one standard deviation above the mean had a 3.2 and a 3.5 times greater risk of ACL injury than those with a lower body weight or BMI. Let's just take a moment to note that we just talked about the female athlete triad and that BMI is correlated in conjunction with age on the increased risk of female ACL injury. Clinically, I think it's fair to say that we should be focusing on managing other risk factors a little bit more and encouraging these younger female athletes to have stronger, more resilient bodies versus focusing on more of a weight management concern. Obviously, if there is a weight management concern, nutritionists, their primary care physicians, things like that would be great people to refer them to. Just my 50 second thought. Um, I think we all know that words matter when we're treating patients, but moving on. All right, so the last one being the biomechanical and neuromuscular changes during puberty. During puberty, the tibia and the femur grow at a rapid rate in both boys and girls. The growth of the two longest levers in the human body translates into greater torques on the knee. Greater body mass translates into greater joint force that's more difficult to balance and dampen during high-velocity athletic movements. The growth and development associated with puberty are related to the neuromuscular, biomechanical, and perhaps even the hormonal factors that underlie ACL injury risk. 
Okay, now the next piece of intrinsic factors is going to focus on the hormonal side. The first consideration being estrogen's effect on the ACL injury incidence. Estrogen is a highly discussed underlying cause of the increased female ACL injury incident. This article discussed differing research surrounding the most common times for females to tear their ACL. Luteal phase injuries were noted more in two articles and one during the ovulatory phase. Estrogen and relaxin concentrations peak during the ovulatory phase of the cycle. Remember that the luteal phase is just before menses, so it would make sense that the research supports more tears around the luteal phase and during ovulation. There is one research study that found greater injury at the follicular phase, which others found the opposite. So if there wasn't enough controversy in the ACL management, there's a menses controversy to add to it. Okay, moving on, let's take a look at the estrogen effects on ACL ligamentous strength. Decreased ligament strength due to cyclical changes in female hormones could be a possible contributor to female ACL injuries. Clinically, there's a lot of controversy on the actual effects of estrogen on tissues to the level of failure. Physiologically, we know both estrogen and relaxin are reported to affect the tensile properties of ligaments, and estrogen receptors are present in human ACL fibroblasts, whereas estradiol decreases procollagen synthesis in cultured fibroblasts from a female ACL. It's important to note that physiologic concentrations of estradiol significantly decrease ligamentous strength, and relaxin decreases soft tissue tension. Although a study on sheep found estrogen fluctuation across the menstrual cycle did not lead to clinically significant alterations in material properties of a sheep ACL in vivo. Now looking at estrogen's effect on neuromuscular control and function. One study reported quad strength increases and a significant slowing of muscle relaxation during the ovulatory phase of the menstrual cycle. CM estrogen concentrations fluctuate radically throughout the cycle, and estrogen has a measurable effect on muscle function and tendon and ligamentous strength. Female hormones could be a significant contributor to the neuromuscular control of the knee joint. While we know that there are an effect on this function, we know this is not the only underlying factor. Last but not least, we're talking about oral contraceptives and the effect on injury and laxity. The question is whether oral contraceptives could potentially be prescribed to prevent ACL injuries. Recognize that the data surrounding the use of oral contraceptives and ACL injury are also controversial. Three different articles support the use of contraceptives in decreasing ligamentous laxity and decreasing ACL injury. The thought seems to be that oral contraceptives may block the hormonal effects on neuromuscular control and ACL laxity and integrity to increase knee stability by blunting large fluctuations, especially estrogen and estradiol. Okay, so we looked at anatomical and hormonal intrinsic factors. We have neuromuscular intrinsic factors left, some discussion, and conclusion. So neuromuscular intrinsic factors. First is the antagonist-agonist relationships of the quad and the hamstrings. These are meant to protect the knee joint from the excess anterior drawer, but also that knee abduction and dynamic lower extremity valgus. Deficits in strength and activation of the hamstring directly limit the potential for muscular co-contraction to protect those ligaments. This article discusses how women exhibit less muscular protection of knee ligaments under internal rotation loading compared to men, as well as three times less knee flexor moments when decelerating to landing compared to men. Another theory is due to women demonstrating decreased hamstrings to quads, peak torque ratios, and increased knee abduction or valgus moments compared with male subjects. 
The authors discuss that the ability to decelerate from a landing and control dynamic valgus and anterior tibial translation and rotation could be related to the decreased imbalance in the hamstrings to quad strength. It's also not unlikely that the ACL injury is caused either by an isolated coronal or sagittal plane loading mechanism, but rather through a combination of the two mechanisms. The hamstring muscles clearly demonstrate their role as joint stabilizers in the patient who has a deficient ACL. Electromyographic studies have demonstrated that females have significant gender-related neuromuscular imbalances in the quads and hamstrings activation patterns. During flexion exercises, female athletes demonstrate increased activation of their quad relative to the contraction of the hamstrings and increased anterior tibial loads during dynamic exercises. Disproportional recruitment of the quads musculature may lead to increased anterior shear force in female athletes. Therefore, the available literature demonstrates several relationships between altered hamstring activation strategies and suggests its potential to be related to an ACL injury. So now on to altered magnitude and timing of muscle activation. We just mentioned how electromyographic studies demonstrate gender-related differences in the timing of muscle activation during athletic maneuvers. One study reported that female athletes have a slower response of hamstring activation to anterior stress on the HCL. They also reported that female hamstring muscles were activated earlier than were male hamstring muscles before landing. However, they speculated that the male pattern led to greater muscle synchrony that better controlled the joint landing. The authors noted that in general, increased quadriceps activity combined with low hamstrings activation contribute to lower energy absorption and landing and increased ground reaction forces associated with ACL injuries. Moving into pre-activation of protective muscle groups. Although ACL injuries occur too quickly for reflexive muscular activation, athletes can adopt or pre-program safer movement patterns that reduce injury risk during landing or pivoting or unexpected loads or perturbations during sports movements. Pre-activation of the quadriceps could be related to those female athletes' increased valgus alignment at initial contact when performing cutting and landing maneuvers. Another neuromuscular consideration is the decreased proprioception. The ACL not only holds the joint intact, but it's richly innervated and possesses specific mechanoreceptors. The ACL functions as a sensor of torque and elongation of the ACL, which may indicate an anterior translation of the tibia on the femur. The stretch reflex responds to stretch on the ACL by the hamstrings activation. So it's been noted that after an ACL rupture, women have increased sway, indicating either a predisposition to high-risk females or greater trauma at the proprioceptive system of women after a tear. So proprioception deficits may play a role in ACL injury mechanism. An imbalance in medial and lateral muscle firing patterns is next. One study noted that females have a four times greater muscle recruitment from the lateral versus the medial hamstring. Another study noted that the medial quad recruits less than the lateral quad. And who doesn't love blaming the VMO for everything? Whenever there's anything wrong, I feel like at least 10 studies are looking at that VMO. So let's think about those force vectors from the lateral quad to the medial hamstring that are contracting at the highest. You can see how that would change the coronal place control. An unbalanced or a low ratio of medial to lateral quad recruitment combined with increased lateral hamstring firing would compress the lateral joint, open the medial joint, and increase that anterior shear force, which could potentially increase the risk of ACL injury. Fatigue is another contributing factor. Increased fatigue is a very lightly studied factor though. So these authors concluded that muscle fatigue altered the neuromuscular response to anterior tibial translation. However, they did not demonstrate that fatigue affected the dynamic stability of the knee. 
Okay, on to biomechanical predictors and considerations. Video analysis of ACL injuries during competitive sports play indicate a common body position associated with non-contact ACL injury where the tibia is externally rotated, the knee is close to full extension, and the foot is planted. There's also a deceleration occurring followed by a valgus collapse. However, with sufficient neuromuscular control, knee stability can be maintained during competitive play without an ACL injury. I think a huge clinical piece in these prevention methods they mentioned before is that preventative muscular training to reduce the inability to tolerate those forces. The sport that had the most knee valgus was interestingly enough found to be handball. They take a further look at the anterior shear forces in the sagittal plane, especially at that knee joint. Honestly, there was no consensus as to whether female athletes land and cut with greater knee flexion than males do, but the balance of evidence indicates that women maneuver with knee flexion angles near or equal to those of men. Now for mechanism of injury, when looking at video analyses, many articles discuss that ACL injuries occur closer to full knee extension, 30 to 0 degrees, and that peak anterior drawer force never exceeded loads that would be required for ACL rupture. But for the valgus component, valgus loads reached values that were high enough to rupture the ligament and occurred more frequently in women than in men. The authors concluded that quadriceps force was insufficient to rupture the ACL and suggested that valgus loading could generate high enough forces to rupture the ligament. So let's talk about what the hip is doing during this too. Peak external hip flexion moment was greater in the group that sustained ACL injury compared to the uninjured athletes. Some studies reported decreased glute max activity in females compared to male athletes during single-legged landings. So those female athletes experience higher ground reaction forces at the lower extremity during landing because of the decreased use of the hip musculature in order to absorb those forces. As with other considerations, more studies of neuromuscular control of the hip is necessary before drawing conclusions on this. Last but not least, the ankle. Variations in ankle joint angles have been shown to influence joint forces, moments, and muscular activation patterns. Sagittal plane ankle position in female athletes with ACL injury has not been well researched and therefore requires further study. Okay, onto the coronal plane, where we're going to look at what the knee, hip, and ankle are doing there too. For the knee, knee abduction was more than 8 degrees greater in the ACL injured group than in the uninjured groups. Knee abduction angle correlated to peak vertical ground reaction force in ACL injured athletes. Just a reminder that knee flexion angle was not a strong predictor of future ACL injury. Another gender comparison to think about, female athletes had a greater knee abduction angle when preparing to execute a cutting maneuver compared to male athlete counterparts. Okay, let's look at the hip in the coronal plane. We know hip angles during landing can be important determinants of impact force at the knee. We discussed that women have gender-related imbalances in muscle contractions, and that includes a decreased gluteal muscle firing. They also found an increase in rectus femoral firing. The hip abductor muscles may play an important role in controlling that excessive valgus motion and torque in female athletes. Female athletes have a greater hip adduction moment during landing. So we can detect that repeated performance of these high-risk maneuvers with insufficient hip control and motion could lead to the valgus collapse and ACL rupture. As for the ankle, female athletes had a greater maximum ankle eversion than male athletes did during the stance phase of cutting. This outcome is a coupling of that foot pronation and the internal tibial rotation. While we know that valgus positioning of the knee can increase ACL rupture and ankle eversion can contribute to that position, The ankle contributions to the ACL injury aren't really clear per these authors. Now for the final plane of motion, the transverse plane. 
At the knee joint, we know that the internal and external rotation torques likely contribute to that ACL injury. They reported that increased internal and external knee moments during unanticipated sports moments, so we're going to think about things like cutting. It would make sense that these non-contact injuries are occurring during non-anticipated motions for cutting versus pre-planned motions where muscles are going to have more increased activation. At the hip joint, if there's a decreased activation of proximal stabilizing muscles, this can result in higher loads at the knee in the transverse, sagittal, and coronal planes. If one area isn't working well, the work has to be made up somewhere else. We know that the glute max is an external rotator as well as extensor and abductor of the hip. So this would play a large role in excess rotation at the hip. For the ankle, the jury seemed to have been out on the transverse plane. The researchers mentioned subtalar joint pronation was reported to be greater in ACL injured patients compared to controls, but others refute that. Other unanticipated situations and movements are often cited as a common mechanism for non-contact ACL ruptures. ACL injuries occurred most often by a plant and cut mechanism and by single leg landing, which was the second most common mechanism. The alteration in reflex response and the limited time to make postural adjustments for these unanticipated situations are considered contributions to non-contact ACL injury. For contact injuries, the less likely event in ACL injury, this typically occurs in situations where players are running forward or decelerating without a change of direction when landing on one foot. Consider prior injury. That's unfortunately the single best predictor of future injury risk. This concept applies to ACL injuries as well as injuries in general. For the ACL, however, injuries to the contralateral knee are even more common than re-injuries to the same. One study reported contralateral tears of 1 in 26 knees and re-tears in 1 in 38 knees. Whew, that was a long one. So let's get to the take-home points. One, increased ACL injury in female athletes is likely a multifactorial musculoskeletal disorder. Neuromuscular control may be important to decrease the risk for injury and the most modifiable factor. Two, neuromuscular training in female athletes has been shown to increase knee activation and stabilization in the laboratory and decrease the incidence of ACL injury. We're going to want to watch athletes use joint stabilization patterns that have safer muscular pre-stance and mid-stance activation patterns. All right, so Hewitt et al.'s articles on ACL were done with two out of three. The last one that we're going to do next is part two of this anterior cruciate ligament injury in female athletes. And this is going to be a meta-analysis of neuromuscular interventions aimed at injury prevention. As far as week two goes, we're through five of the 11 articles in week two of the female athlete. So next up is that part two of Hewitt et al., and I hope to see you guys listening there. Bye, everyone. Bye.